Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 11. It's good to have you with us and also for those joining online as well. And we trust the Lord to bless us as we continue on our study of bibliology. So Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 11. Let's hear the word of the Lord. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom uh, this people shall say a confederacy, confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, and for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, and for a beginning, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And many among them shall stumble and fall, and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep, and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God, for the living to the dead? Through the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And they shall pass through it, hardly be stead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to our heart. Let's just unite in prayer, please, and come before the Lord and ask the Lord to bless us even this morning. Our gracious God and loving Father, we bow in thy presence in this thy day in thy house. We come into thy courts with thanksgiving. We lift up our hearts to thee with praise. That Lord, that thou alone art the only true and living God. And we thank thee, Lord, for the special revelation which thou hast given to us. We thank thee for this word. We thank thee, Lord, for all the truths that emanate from it. We thank thee, Lord, for the central truth of Scripture, redemption through the blood. And we thank thee, Lord, for the one who is revealed as Redeemer. We thank thee for thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in the fullness of time to redeem us from the curse of the law. And we sit here this morning, and we are accepted in the beloved, and we rejoice and thank thee for every blessing and privilege that is ours. We thank thee, Lord, for the blessing of the copy of this scripture. We thank the Lord for the authorized version. We thank the Lord for your blessing upon it throughout the years. And Lord, we come to lift up our hearts with thanksgiving to thee. And we pray that thou would send us help from the sanctuary. Lord, you've said here, I will be for a sanctuary. And we pray that thou would preserve us and protect us, O God, from error and from going astray and from all the assaults and attacks of the wicked one. We pray, O God, that you'll help us to stand fast by the book O God, and to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember our Sunday school and the Bible classes, O God. We pray for every teacher 
that thou would help them and fill them with the Spirit. Remember every child. We pray for the opening of the heart. Thou alone art the one who can unlock the heart and let the truth of the gospel enter in. And we pray, O God, that even this morning that thou would come with great deliverance and salvation blessing to our Sunday school and save little ones and apply the word real powerfully to their hearts. Bring that sense of conviction of sin. We'll give that childlike faith to rest alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we look to thee. Help us, Lord. Leave us not to ourselves in the saddle Bible class. Bless the internet ministry. We pray, O God, that thou would glorify thy Son and answer to these prayers. For this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake and thine everlasting praise and glory. Amen. I want to pick up our study this morning once again on the canonicity of Scripture. And this is an important subject because no doubt we want to know all that we can know about the Lord. We don't want anything to be missing from God's special revelation to mankind, nor do we want anything mixed with it that is not from God. And we noted the last time that the word canon, it comes from a word, a Greek word, which means read, means read. And it later took on the meaning of a rule or standard as the read was used for measuring. The word canon then became to represent the list of books that make up the Scripture. So when we speak about the canon of Scripture, that's what we're speaking about, the list of individual books that make up our Bible. Now, that obviously gives rise to certain questions like how were these books collected together to form a single volume? When did this happen? Who made the critical decisions of what was included and what was excluded? Why should we think that the list of books that we have is right? You know, that's something we began to consider the last time. We underscored the point that no church, no church or council made any book inspired. They simply recognized what God had already determined. Those books were inspired and they belonged to the canon of Scripture as soon as God the Holy Ghost gave them. Now we consider the canonicity of the Old and the New Testament books. And we noted that the Old Testament was well and truly fixed at the time of Christ. So there wasn't much debate over the books that were included in the Hebrew Scripture when we compare our English Bible with it. It's really when we come to the New Testament that there was debate. The rise of spurious gospels and the, the existence of all our writings, not necessarily heretical, but not inspired. Well, all those writings, those books, they muddied the waters as to what really belonged to the canon of Scripture. So several tests were basically applied, not formally, but nonetheless they were applied by the early church in order that they might recognize which books belonged to the canon, which books were inspired. And we began to look at those tests the last time. We Firstly, we thought about the test of authorship. Now, a Jewish test for the Old Testament was that the books had to be written down by Moses or one of the prophets. And in like manner, for a book to be considered part of the New Testament, well, its penman must be one of the apostles, someone under the direction of an apostle, or an eyewitness and companion of Christ. So we thought about authorship. Then we also, secondly, thought about the test of authority. Does the book speak with uh, thus saith the Lord element? And that's really as far as we got the last time. Just two tests, authorship and authority. And this morning I want to continue on looking at the tests which were applied 
As I said, not formally. He didn't sit down and say, we're going to do this all out. But they were applied nonetheless by the early church. But before I give you the third test that was applied, we need to keep in mind that no test, no test by itself could give infallible assurance that a book belonged to the canon of Scripture. It was a test combined and bounded by the testimony of the Holy Spirit that leaves us in no doubt concerning the canonicity of New Testament books. So the third test this morning, thought about the test of authorship, the test of authority. The third test is attributes. What is the characteristic of the book? If God genuinely is the one who stands behind the book, well then we would automatically, we would expect the writing to share God's own qualities. And the Reformers referred to these as divine qualities or indicators. Now we know that the world is created by God. And as such we see God's own attributes revealed in His creation. And that's what we're told in Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1 and the verse 20. Likewise, we would expect God's special revelation, His written word, to, to do the same, to, to bear the imprint of His divine qualities. Well, examples of such qualities in God's Word, what would they be? Well, they'd be beauty, excellency, power, efficacy, unity, and harmony. That's what we'd expect and what we'd find in the writings of God's Word. We'd find all those things, beauty. We think of God's glory, efficacy, God's power. We think of unity and harmony. Well, He is the ever-blessed Trinity. And so we'd expect these things in the Bible. And these attributes we do find in the books that belong to the canon of Scripture. Through these divine qualities, Christians, they recognize the qualities, we could say also the voice of the Lord in the authentic books of the canon of Scripture. As Jesus Christ Himself said, what did He say? My sheep hear my voice. They recognize the voice of Christ, the divine qualities within it, the power in it the harmony in it, the, the beauty and the sweetness of the voice of Christ, and they follow me. Now, of course, non-Christians, they will object to the idea of these divine qualities in the Scripture because they don't personally see such qualities. They would say, you know, that's only subjectivism on the part of the reader. They're just simply reading that in to those, those pieces of literature. But we must remember that natural man has been corrupted by the fall and he's darkened by his sin. And in order to see those qualities rightly, well, a natural man needs the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And for those of us who are in Christ, the Spirit opens our eyes to see the divine qualities that are objectively present in the books. And it's not some, something that we're simply reading into them. So that's the test of attributes. Does the writing contain, as it were, the divine attributes of God? Is it powerful? Is it beautiful? Is it in harmony? Is it in unity? A fourth test that was applied was activity. The activity of the book. What I mean by that, does it have the power to change lives, transforming me? And this really ties in closely with the attributes of the work. For a powerful living God produces a powerful living Word that has the ability to affect and impact one's life more than any other book. 
That is because it is the Word of God. It does all that it claims to be able to do. The Word of God, it convicts the activity of conviction. Hebrews chapter 4 and the verse 12, For the Word of God is quick, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is the activity of conviction. The Word of God gets into man more than any other book. The Word of God, it sanctifies the activity of sanctification. John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. The Word has a quickening effect. Is not what the psalmist said, that a soul cleaveth unto the dust, but he wanted to be quickened by his word. We could think of John 6 and the verse 63. The Lord Jesus, he said, is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and life. There's a quickening effect with the word of God. Here's the activity of this divine book of God. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now this indicates that through the effectual operation of the Holy Spirit, any of the inspired books that we read or hear with meekness has the ability to transform our lives, to, to bring us to that man of God, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Therefore, knowing the his, that historically, historically a book was proven to have the ability to convict, to edify, to inspire, to, to quicken, both individuals and the local congregation, it gave the early church the assurance that it was inspired. So the test of activity. A fifth test that was applied was accuracy and agreement. The accuracy and agreement, is it historically and chronologically accurate? That's the test that the early church applied. Does it record facts as they actually occurred? Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it tells us that God cannot lie. Therefore, any errors invalidate any writing as being the Word of God. The God of truth does not inspire error of fact in His writings. We've already seen that, that the Scriptures are inerrant. Does the book, the writing, tell the truth about all that it addresses? Was the author who the author claimed to be, or was he writing under a false name? See, Paul, he addresses the practice of forgery in, in his day uh, to the church there at Thessalonica. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, in the verse 2, he writes to them there, that ye should not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. In other words, there was those who were writing letters and they were writing their name on it. There was, there was a forgery. It wasn't accurate. It wasn't true. And, and there's no way that God would ever inspire that. Did the content of each book 
agree internally and externally with the others' inspired books, whose inspiration could not be doubted at that time and had been proven by all their criteria. See, by this test, books that are clearly contrary to the Christian faith, a faith that was already derived from their already accepted books, any books that contained anything that was clearly contrary to the Christian faith, where they were rejected because they were not inspired by God, seeing that God cannot contradict Himself. Now, it has to be said there were some doubts in the early church pertaining to the book of James, because it was thought that it was contradictory to salvation by grace through faith. But James was writing about the evidence of faith. He was writing what theologians call declarative justification. How the life shows that they are truly justified, whereas Paul was writing about actual justification. Works, yes, necessarily flow out of justification, but they are not a criteria for salvation. So there's absolutely no contradiction. Now, the critic, the critic's never far away. And the critic, well, they would object that it was the church which created the consistency of the Bible by simply rejecting the books which did not agree with the analogy of faith. But this is not the case. Because I've, as I've said and pointed out, the church did not simply apply one test to a piece of literature, but they applied all the tests. And so the critic will say, well, it's just because you don't like the doctrine contained in that book that you say that's not in it. That's not how the church worked. They applied all the tests, authorship, authority, accuracy, agreement, activity. They applied it all. And they based the inclusion of that book, the recognition, or the recognition that it is an inspired book and belonged to the canon of Scripture upon all those tests joined together. The test of accuracy and agreement. A sixth test was that of acceptance. Was the book accepted by the vast majority of the church of Jesus Christ as belonging to the Word of God? Now, this does not mean that God's people had instantaneously and absolutely had that unity over the canonical books. There was always pockets of disagreement. And dissension, and that's the case over every doctrine. But, but the writing, we have to say, it must have been accepted as the Word of God by the church in its broad consensus. You see, a collective, the collective voice of wisdom of the people of God across the time and around the world that carries a great weight in recognizing that a writing belonged to the canon of Scripture and it was inspired. It's important to note that the work of the Spirit does not only happen on the individual level, but also on the corporate level. God's collective, covenantal people would eventually recognize the books that were from Him and those that were not. And that's why when you hear people talk about the so-called lost books of the Bible, they're not lost at all. They were books that were found, they were read, and they were rejected, they were not accepted by the broad church. 
It was really those other criteria, those other tests. Authorship, authority, attributes, activity, accuracy, and agreement combined. And it was those tests combined that produced this consensus, which itself proved to be a test for the canonicity of a book. Now, all the tests of inspiration, they were necessary, I've already said this, to determine the canonicity of each book. Some criteria of inspiration were more important than others, in that the presence of one implies another, or is key to the others. For example, if a book is authoritatively from God, well then it automatically will be dynamic. It will have activity. It will be accompanied by God's transforming power. And in fact, that's really the first test that the early church looked for, the test of authority. So those were the tests that were applied. And as I said the last time, by the middle of the fourth century, there was a completed list of the 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. Now, having pointed that out, we must not think that the recognition of canonicity was a mere mechanical matter. It wasn't that men sat down and systematically applied these tests and rules to, to every piece of literature. Rather, it was a providential process directed by the Holy Spirit as He witnessed to the church the reality of the Word of God. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit mystically spoke in visions to settle questions of canonicity. The witness of the Spirit convinced them of the reality of a God-breathed canon, that it existed, but not its extent. That was left to the early church under the providential process and governance of the Holy Spirit to work it out as the early church applied those seven tests. Now, what I want to do for the next part of the Bible class is to look at the Apocrypha as a case study and see why it is to be rejected as belonging to the canon of Scripture. Now, some Bibles, they contain as many as 55 books in their Old Testament, 14 more than we have. Some put the number at 15 because they divide one extra book into two. Now, these extra books, they are referred to as the Apocrypha. Between the books of Malachi and Matthew lies a period of some 400 years, and these years are frequently described as the silent or the mute years. However, they were years that were full of activity, and there were many books written by various Jews during these four centuries. It was during this time that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Zealots had their origins. And each of those sects, they represented different reactions to the continuing clashes between Hellenism, which was the culture of Greece, and its philosophy and Judaism. And so there was this clash of cultures and these groups arose out of it, Phariseeism and Sadduceeism and uh, the Herodians and the Zealots, and they all came up in this period, and there was a, a host of Jewish writers at this time. These writings, they contain a mixture of legend and history, fact and fiction, and they are mostly written between 300 
and 30 B.C. in that era between the Testaments. Now, the collective names of these books is synonymous with doubt. The word apocrypha is from a Greek word which means hidden things. And the Greek word was often used by ecclesiastical authors for matters that are secret or mysterious, unknown in origin, forged, spurious, unrecognized, or uncanical. Not the best collective title to give to such books if the aim was to see them included in the canon of Scripture. But nonetheless, that's what's been given to them, the Apocrypha. Now, not that you will remember, but I'm going to give you the list of the books of the Apocrypha. And the Scripture says, uh, whatsoever things are lovely and pure and think on these things. So I'm going to give them to you because it's an adult Bible class, but I don't expect you to remember this list. There's Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, 1 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees, additions to Daniel, the prayer of Azariah and the songs of the three children, the story of Susanna, Baal and the dragon, 1st Estras and 2nd Estras. So we'll have a Sunday school exam at the end of the year and see how many you can remember of those books. Now those books, they fit into a variety of categories. Historical, reflective, legendary, prophetic, and apocalyptic. Now just to give you a background to some of the content of a few of these books, some, well, they claim to be concerned with stories that are found in the Bible. For example, the rest of Esther, that book retells the Bible story of Esther. Well, that's in the title, I assume. Tobit and Judith, well, they're accounts of life after the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. The Song of the Three Holy Children, if you were to take a guess at that, well, it's concerned with the he three Hebrew boys that were thrown into the fiery furnace. Others, well, they're legendary, like Baal and the dragon, in which Daniel is said to have killed a dragon by feeding it lumps of pitch, fat, and hair. The two books of Maccabees, well, they contain much valuable material, historical material, concerning the Maccabean wars before the birth of Christ. That's just to give you some of the content of those books. Now, in 405 A.D., Pope, if there was ever a Pope who was not well named, Pope Innocent I, he endorsed the Apocrypha. Even though at the same time, Jerome, who was responsible for translating the Bible into Latin, he wanted it excluded. At the Council of Trent in 1546, well, Rome made up its mind, and a curse was placed upon any who rejected the Apocrypha as part of the Bible. They put them on par with Scripture and declared them to be the inspired Word of God. The Russian and the Greek Orthodox churches, they also place the Apocrypha on par with the Scripture. Now, if we are to accept all the books of the Apocrypha, our Bibles will bulge, will bulge significantly. These 15 books, they add to the Bible a volume of literature that is about 84% of the size of the New Testament. Now, the question is, does this volume of literature warrant inclusion in 
our Bibles. After all, that's a large amount of material, and we wouldn't want to miss out on anything that God has said. The conclusion arrived at in the Westminster Confession of Faith is this. The book's commonly called apocryphal. Not being of divine inspiration are no part of the canon of Scripture and therefore are of no authority in the church of God. There is a number of reasons why they are to be rejected and we're going to look at them now. Why the Apocrypha is to be rejected. Firstly, the Lord Jesus and His disciples completely ignored them. No record exists to suggest that Christ or His disciples ever quoted from the apocryphal books. It has been argued that there are a few statements in the Apocrypha that seem parallel to New Testament teaching, but they're not identical, nor are they direct quotations. They're only mere allusions. On the other hand, Christ quoted directly from 24 different Old Testament books. In the New Testament, there are approximately 260 direct quotations from the Old Testament. The New Testament as a whole quotes from 34 books of the Old Testament. There's only five books that are not quoted directly. They're Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. However, that's not significant that those books were not quoted because they were part of the collections of the Old Testament books. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they They're always included in that history collection. And the Lord quoted from that section. Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, well, they were always always included in the poetry collection. And Christ quoted from the Psalms. By quoting one book from the collection, it verified the whole. And the reason why Christ and His disciples completely ignored those Apocrypha books It's obvious they did not regard them as part of Scripture. That's the first reason. Christ and the apostles completely ignored them. A second reason for rejecting the Apocrypha is that they were never found in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, at the time of Christ, and it must be said, the Old Testament was available in Palestine. Two versions the more liberal Alexandrian Septuagint. And that was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scripture. Now, it did include the Apocrypha. But there was the more conservative, there was the Hebrew version, and that excluded the Apocrypha. Now, it may have been due to the fact that readers, many of the readers of the Septuagint, they had they were completely, they had unacquainted with the Hebrew Bible. They couldn't speak Hebrew. And so they wanted to read the Hebrew Scriptures and they would have read it in the Greek, the Septuagint. And maybe because of that, because of their constant use of the Greek version of the Old Testament, they began to take the Apocrypha as belonging to the Scripture. But the Jews themselves rejected the Apocrypha. The Jewish council of Jamnia in A.D. 90, well, it made a ruling that only the Hebrew Old Testament books were canonical. Ancient Jewish writers like Philo and Josephus, they were acquainted with the Apocrypha, but they never quoted from those books as being Scripture. The, the Talmud, 
And that's a Jewish body of writings concerning laws and legends. That was quite clear that the books of the Apocrypha, they form no part of the Scriptures. So Christ and the disciples, they totally disregarded them. The Hebrews themselves totally disregarded them. A third reason why they are to be rejected is because not one of the writers claims that the word of the Lord come unto him. In fact, some of the authors, they explicitly deny that their writings were inspired. Not one writer. The thus saith the Lord element is missing from the apocryphal books. A fourth reason. Some of these reasons are longer and shorter than others. A fourth reason why they are to be rejected is because in some parts of those books, they include many historical, geographical inaccuracies and teachings that are chronologically out of place. The Apocrypha contains errors that can be easily proven. Just to give you some examples. Tobit was supposedly alive when Jeroboam staged a revolt in 931 B.C. and was still living at the time of the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. And that would make him 209 years old. Yet, in his own book, it says that he lived for only 158 years. Nebuchadnezzar, he's called the king of the Assyrians in Judah chapter 1 verse 7. And is said to have reigned in Nineveh, but we know from Scripture in Daniel 4 that Nebuchadnezzar he was king of Babylon. Barach, well, it incorrectly claims that the sacred vessels of the temple, they were returned to Jerusalem during the days of Jeremiah, when in reality they returned after the Babylonian exile, as we read in Ezra chapter 1 and the verse 7. So they contain historical and geographical inaccuracies. They're not accurate. The fifth reason why we reject the Apocrypha is that there are instances in some of those books where they slight the character of God. They slight the character of God. For example, in Judith 9, verses 10 and 13, God is portrayed as assisting Judith in a lie. But God cannot lie. A sixth reason why they are to be rejected is that the apocrypha books they never had the broad consensus of the church as belonging to the canon of Scripture. There was, were as many as, uh, of the early church fathers who accepted the books as inspired as the number who rejected them. There was never a broad consensus. Even man's own opinion changed to their inclusion or exclusion over the span of their own lifetime. Some of them started off thinking, yes, these are part of it, and then by the end of their lives, they thought, no, they're not part of it. Many, like Martin Luther, they admitted that, admitted that they were useful and, and good to read. But they, they were not on par with Scripture. They were not inspired. A seventh reason why the apocryphal books are to be rejected, is that some of them do not agree with the analogy of faith. And this is the reason why Rome wants to keep them in the canon of Scripture. By her heresy, she lines her coffers, keeping her people in bondage and fear. 
The Roman Catholic Church reaffirmed the apocryphal books of Scripture at the Vatican Council in 1820. It had already done so in 1546 at the Council of Trent, but they reaffirmed it in 1820. And many of their teachings could not be found in the Old Testament Scriptures, but some of them could be gleaned from the Apocrypha. For example, in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 44 and 45, Rome finds support for praying for the dead which is refuted, as you know, by Luke chapter 16 and the parable of of Lazarus and the rich man. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. But Rome finds for their heresy support in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, 44 and 45. Also, Barach chapter 3 and verse 4 claims that God hears the prayers of the dead. That's in 2 Maccabees chapter 12 again. That we find the false doctrine of purgatory. That's the portion upon which that is based. Almsgiving, charitable donations, as it were, to the church. Well, they are considered efficacious for the forgiveness of sins, according to Tobit chapter 12 and verse 9. And it says there, for almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Those who give alms would enjoy a full life. Is it any wonder that Tetzel came up with his little phrase about the coin dropping in the the chest and the, the soul from purgatory springs? When they turn to these uh, portions of these additional books to the Scripture, the Bible tells us that there's only one thing that purges away sin. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not almsgiving. It's not money going into the church. There's all our errors that are contrary to what the inspired word teaches. For example, it appears from 2 Maccabees chapter 14 that suicide is justified. The book of wisdom, well, it teaches the heresy of the preexistence of souls. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20 sums up the proper attitude of all Bible-believing Christians regarding these spurious books. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Those who are held under such false teaching, there is darkness. Held in darkness and under the bondage of their sin. When the tests of canonicity are applied to the books of the Apocrypha, we see that those books fail. They fail the test. Now these tests can also be applied to other writings that claim to have come from God. There are many other books written under false names that attempted to imitate Scripture in those early centuries. Those books, they were collectively known as the pseudepigrapha. The pseudepigrapha, that's what they were known as. And that comes from two Greek words, meaning false and to ascribe. And together, it means to write falsely. They were spurious works written by unknown authors. And they attempted to gain a readership by tacking on the name of a famous biblical character. 
obviously a book called The Testimony or The Testament of Abraham has a better chance of being read than a counterfeit testament of an unknown author. And there are many books that fall into that category which do not belong to Scripture. They tacked on the name of a Bible character seeking to gain a readership. Books like The Vision of Isaiah, The Book of Noah, The Epistle of Barnabas, The Gospel According to Thomas, upon which the author Dan Brown, he based his fictitious work, The Da Vinci Code. And that blasphemously, it suggests that Jesus had a relationship with Mary Magdalene, that they actually were married and produced offspring. You know, all those books, those spurious books that belong to that pseudepigraphia, when all the tests are once again applied, the canonicity of Scripture, authorship, authority, attribute, accuracy, agreement, activity, acceptance, they all fail the tests. Just like the Book of Mormon, the Quran, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy and the Indian Vedas, they all fail the tests. We can be confident in the canon of Scripture that we have. There is nothing missing. There is nothing added that should not be added contained in the 66 books of the Bible, is all that man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And being complete, it is also closed. It's a closed canon. Because it's complete, it is closed. The most significant implication of a closed canon is that additional books cannot be added to the Bible, and none of the books that currently make up the canon of Scripture can be removed. God has spoken. A closed canon. It also implies that there's no apostles or prophets today receiving new revelations from God. The church is gifted with preachers and teachers of the Word, but any who claim a new revelation from God proffers his or her own message as divinely inspired or assumes authority on par with the Bible is leading people astray. And sadly, many in the church give heed to dreams and visions shared from the pulpit of those who falsely claim, God spoke to me. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in me. A closed and a complete canon doesn't mean that God has ceased to reveal Himself to people because He does through this Word. But it does mean that there'll be no new revelation of truth outside of what He's already said in the Bible. And once again, brethren and sisters, we enter into other men's labors as we stand upon the solid foundation of the canon of Scripture. It's good to have confidence in this book. And it's good to know that God has given us all we need to know and all we should know concerning Him and what duty He requires of us. Let's bow in prayer as we bring to a close that subject of the canonicity of Scripture. We've looked at all those tests and the importance of looking at it to be sure.
and to know in these days when people come with these new messages, new revelations, why we reject it. Not just because they don't agree with us, because it doesn't stand the test of canonicity. That's why. And so we're thankful that grace finds us where we are. And grace alone has made us to differ. Let us never forget that. Heavenly Father, we thank and bless Thee for the canon of Scripture. We thank Thee, Heavenly Father, for the light of the Word of God. Lord, our hearts go out to those who are in deep darkness. Of all these heresies imposed upon them, holding them down in bondage and in fear. Lord, I pray that the light of the gospel would shine forth from our lives, from our witness here. We pray that you'll help us to understand why we stand upon the 66 books of the Bible. God, help us to know why we believe this book to be the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient Word of the living God. We thank Thee, Lord, for its activity. And we pray, O God, that even this morning, in the morning worship, that You would work upon our hearts, that the Holy Ghost will come, and that He would take up, as it were, in my hand, the whole sword of the Spirit. And we pray there will be that convicting, Lord, impact of the Word, that sanctifying influence, that quickening, O God, we pray. We thank Thee, Lord, for this book, a living book, because Thou art a living God. Come, we beseech of Thee. We pray that, Lord, that the Word that has been sown into the hearts of our young children, O God, will bring forth fruit unto life everlasting. Cause it to germinate, cause it to spring forth to the glory of Thy name. Help us, Lord, in the time of prayer. Bless us, Lord, as we gather around Your Word. For these things we pray in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.